The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain. Want to make a podcast? Let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters, and it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number eight. Like a shock explosion. Everything went black, stars thrown in the air, fall down. I'm like, what What happened? All of a sudden I come to and I look and I see the damage on my legs and it was pretty bad. Um, I saw my, on my right side, I saw basically from my kneecap up, my foot was gone and I saw just a very cleanly polished bone. It ended up being like my tib or fib or something like that on the right side, just sticking out on the left side. My left leg was like in pieces, like just, it was there, but it was in pieces. So instantly I'm, uh, you know, I'm in shock. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm going to die freaking out. Cause you try to move. I tried to move and they wouldn't move. There's nothing there to move. Altitude. Altitude. Seat tied, Altura Zero Eyes, we're clear for takeoff, clear for the airspace. Fire protector, close me, 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 fire protector, the voice in the opening clip is my guest today, Caleb Brewer. Caleb is truly an inspiration to me. And I think when you hear his story, you're going to say the exact same thing. In that clip, he was talking about the seconds immediately following stepping on a pressure plate IED in Helmand, Afghanistan. I was fortunate to meet Caleb a little less than two years after that incident. And we met surfing of all places. Caleb was participating in a program called Operation Surf run by Danny Nichols out in Huntington Beach, California. And I had just flown an air show there. Danny was nice enough to take me and the rest of the team out and t- for surf lessons. It was my first time surfing and I was absolutely terrible at it. And that's an understatement, but I loved it. And seeing Caleb and meeting Caleb, it was an inspiration not only for the surfing piece of it, because he obviously was overcoming a significant hurdle in order to be out there surfing much more so than I was, but Caleb just as a person, everything he had to do to become a Green Beret is an inspiration. That's not an easy thing to do. The mountains he had to climb, literal mountains he had to climb, all the things he had to do in life in order to manage his family life, his military life, his civilian job was incredibly challenging. It was a very long road It took a lot of dedication in order to achieve his dream of becoming a Green Beret. And when you hear that and you hear the effort it took and the energy he poured into it day in and day out, year after year, people like Caleb are the ones that you want to emulate. That's who I want to be. That's who I want to be around because there are the ones that go out there and get it done. And Caleb is still doing that today. He now runs an adaptive fitness gym. 
He's into archery. He is growing and he's expanding and he's continuing to push the limits. And that is why Caleb is an inspiration to me. We're definitely going to get to know Caleb. We're going to hear about his journey to becoming a Green Beret, what that took. We're going to talk about his deployments. We're going to talk specifically about the mission where he stepped on a pressure plate IED, the recovery afterwards, what his life looks like today, and what he is doing. But before we get into the podcast, we are going to hit some admin notes and then get after it. So first, again, I would like to thank all of you who've gone out there and you subscribed, you followed wherever you're listening, and you've left reviews and ratings. It really does make a difference, and I do appreciate those of you who have taken the time to do that. Again, for those of you who are looking for more content, my Patreon site, patreon.com backslash the Afterburn podcast. There is more content up there. The early access to episodes, exclusive Q&A, behind the scenes, and then your ability to participate in some of the show development, as well as a myriad of other benefits are out there. Again, swing over to patreon.com backslash the Afterburn podcast if you're looking for more content and looking to support the show. Again, I appreciate it. And I'd like to thank my sponsors for this episode, Squadron Posters and Wingman Watches, both veteran-owned companies and all their products built right here in the United States. Not only am I a fan of Squadron Posters, but I've been a customer of theirs for about four years now. A few years ago, a member of my squadron worked with their poster design team to build a custom poster for our squadron, the 77th Fighter Squadron. After seeing the end result, not only did I order our squadron poster, but I ordered the posters of all my previous units. Squadron Posters is a great way to capture your memories and showcase the places you have traveled, where you have lived, and some of the amazing things you've accomplished. Check out SquadronPosters.com and their truly unique artwork. Let Squadron Posters custom art help you share your journey today. Use the code RAIN10 for 10% off your order of $59 or more. Next, I also like to thank Wingman Watches for sponsoring this podcast. I'm excited to have them as a sponsor. I have four of their watches and absolutely love them. If you're looking to build a timepiece that is truly unique, I highly recommend Wingman Watches. Their design team will take care of all the hard work. From taking your concept and shaping it into reality to something that you absolutely love, but they'll also handle all the logistics of organizing the group order, collecting the payment, and dealing with all the necessary logistics that go into it. They're perfect for law enforcement, fire department, medical, sports teams, military, you name it. If you have an organization and you want to build a custom watch for your team, I highly recommend Wingman Watches. Let them build your watch today. Go over to wingmanwatch.com and start your order. You can mention my name and receive a discount on that custom order. Or if you see a watch that you already love that's in stock, you can use the code RAIN10 and receive 10% off that purchase. And that's enough admin for today. Now into the podcast and interview with Caleb Brewer. Oh, man. Well, if you're ready, we'll get rolling here. So, sure. uh, Caleb, thanks for joining me on the podcast, man. Uh, Really excited to have you on. It's kind of funny the way we met. uh, I'll just go ahead and start with it. I was doing an air show and then out in Huntington Beach going surfing, and that is where we met. You were surfing. I was flailing like, I don't know what, a fish out of water just trying to like survive, and you were cruising around. But your story, I think, will make it really fascinating about just that aspect of us meeting. But can you tell me a little bit and the listeners who you are, where you got your start and what you're doing today? Sure. So my name is Caleb Brewer. Um, I was born and raised in Tucson, Arizona, which I actually came back to after retiring from the army. Um, went to high school here, met the love of my life here in high school. We've been together ever since and we're coming up on our, um, wow, 
13th year of being married, which is pretty awesome. But yeah, congrats. Um, so thank you. Um, she's a huge part of my recovery. So I'll talk about that a little bit later. But um, so for me, I went to um, uh, college prep high school, getting ready to go to the university. And I enrolled in the University of Arizona for mechanical engineering with high hopes that I would graduate real quick and be on my way to a regular job. However, I quickly found out that college was not um, my forte at the time. There's no way that I was near mature enough or disciplined enough to do it. So I took a leave of absence, um, started working at a restaurant as a bartender for a little while, and then kind of just floating around trying to figure out what I was going to do. I had this, I had this, just this unspoken thing uh, that drew me to military aspect. I always had a lot of friends that were in the military. All my buddies around me are in it. And then I was like, you know, I'm going to join. And so I talked to a lot of my friends and one of my buddies was, that was in, he was in the reserves as a, in intelligence and told me, you know, Hey, if you have aspirations, go back to college, join the reserves, join intelligence, get your top secret clearance, get some experience and they will pay for school. So I was like, yeah, that was awesome. So I'm going to sign up for um, intelligence. So I, I, in October of 2005 is when I joined. And then when I got to basic training, and, and then uh, the follow on AIT, which is like where you, you learn your specialty. I, I know it's different per branch. In the Army, it's advanced individual training. I quickly realized that intelligence was not for me. And one of the key factors that helped me realize that was a buddy of mine had this book um, called Get Selected for Special Forces. And it was one of a very, very few amount of resources that gave you any kind of information into what it was like to be a Green Beret. And it, and it prepared you for training it had. Um, physical fitness training, you know, you had to have good aptitude scores, how to do that, how to train in the land navigation, how to take care of your body there. It was just a really good once over it. And as soon as I even saw the title of the book, I was like, Oh my God, I made a wrong mistake. I made a mistake. Was that, what I was, gonna do. was that your first exposure to special forces? Like, did you know anyone who had been a green beret, watched a movie as a kid growing up, or was it no kidding? Just your buddy that with that it. book. Wow. That's incredible. That was it. I mean, that's, that's why I say, I think I had something that, that drew me into it. Cause as kids, we were outside every day. We lived in Tucson where it's hot, 115 in the summer. We were playing basketball, you know, riding around on our bikes, building forts, playing Cowboys and Indians, building bows and arrows. We were just always out there getting dirty. And I love being outdoors. And that's a huge aspect to SF is that you have to be one with the land. And so a lot of, um, a lot of the, the unit insignias take a lot of the stuff from the native American Indians because that's where a lot of the heritage comes from. But yeah, that was the first time on that book. Literally the cover is the first time I had ever had any exposure to it. Yeah. That's pretty profound that, I mean, let alone like not even reading the book, but just seeing the book, that's what you want to go do. So what did it take going from you seeing that book to becoming a green Bray? What transpired in that time period? Mm. So like a lot of goals, um, you know, you see something and in the moment it's that honeymoon phase where like excited and you're ready to go, but then life happens and things get dropped by the wayside. Not to say that they're forgotten for good, but other things come um, or more prioritized. So I read the book. I was like, someday I'm going to do this. But then I had the, the initial or the, the immediate goal of completing my training and I was in the reserves. So I had to go back to Tucson and then find a job and then meet up with my unit, all that stuff. So that happened. Um, I had had my wife, Ashley, but she was my girlfriend at the time. Um, we were just kind of flown along. I got a job as a mechanic at a Ford dealership and I loved it. I loved every second of it. It was actually one of the best jobs I had just turning wrenches. I love working with my hands. And then 
right around that time, that was 2007, the end of 2007, I got married to my wife, got the job at Ford, but then we were like, the, the unit um, that I was in said, hey, you got to deploy to Iraq. So next year, the, the, be the middle of June. And so like, okay, so we started ramping up for that. The Ford dealership said, hey, I'm gonna, we're going to hold your job for you. We're going to send you to auto school. We're, we're all ready for you. No problem. When you get back, we got it all set. I was like, okay, cool. Um, went to Iraq and we were in Baghdad 2008 to 2009. And we were working in a, um, a large intelligence cell, basically advising some of the senior leaders on the U.S. side in Iraq. So General Petraeus, General Odierno. And my cell was in charge of the Shia problem set. So we had to we had to be the subject matter experts on everything Shia, which was a huge sect of the Muslim faith in Iraq. Um, so we would do a lot of briefings. We would help them design their strategic decisions across the country was, was insane. You had to be good at briefing people. You had to be good at writing like college level essays. So I learned a ton. I learned a ton and it was a really good job. But the problem is for me, being a person that loves to be outdoors and super active, that job, you're sitting in a desk 18 hours a day, easily seven days a week for 18 months or whatever it was we were over there. It was a long trip. And um, I, that that goal started to come up because I was like, I really don't enjoy sitting in a desk. And I was like, man, you know, a couple of years ago, I wanted to go SF. I was like, well, I talked to my buddies, a couple of them there, and they were had the same goal. So we started training every day. We we're going for ruck marches out in Baghdad um, in, in the dust storms and, and PTing every day and just getting ready for it. And um, by the time we got, coming back by the time we came back to the states myself and one of my close buddies went to the command team and said hey we'd like to transition over to the national guard to go to special forces because the national guard has special forces units but they're in certain states they're not every state and apparently it's a commodity because if you have sf in your state as a national guard it brings more money to the the state's military yeah. so um there's only certain ones and so i i went to utah because they had a headquarters there at a 19th special forces group and I had known people that were there and they're like, yep, you can, you can go to the ascensions board relatively easy and get in. We'll get you in the pipeline to train. So that was, I got back from Iraq in July of 2009. And by September, I was already in the Utah National Guard training um, for that. And then at that point, you know, they accept you, but you still have to prove it. You have to prove that you're, you're, capable and smart enough to go to the selection process. So we had to do, we had to do tons of physical tests. We had to do lots of land navigation up in the mountains and um, near Salt Lake city, Utah. We had to do lots of distance runs and swims and pull-ups and rope climbs and all, all kinds of things to prepare us. And they call them gates. If you don't pass those gates, they're not going to send you to selection. So I was able to pass those gates. And then they sent me into selection in June, July of 2010. How uh, how long was that pre-selection process? Like going through the different physical tests and the and the academic test and land nav and things like that. It's it's a month. Um, it, it would depend on the person. A lot of times people come in and they're not ready. And especially if you're if you're training in Utah, Salt Lake City, Utah, the area. It, if you've ever been there, it's mountainous. Yeah. And they would have us do twelve mile ruck marches straight into the mountains, up, <laughs> and you have to maintain a. A, a quick pace and you have 45, 65 pounds on your back, oh. you're running with that bag on you. So it, your body takes a pounding. Um, so it, it could take anywhere six months, two years to even get to selection. No kidding. Um, from that, yeah. What's, Cause it's at a national. Sorry, go ahead. 
it's at a national guard's pace just meaning you only have one week in a month or whatever to be able to to do that so the rest of the time you're training at your home station so we had guys flying from all over the country california florida texas new york to uh. come to try to try basically try out to go to the tryouts yeah. So. Okay. That so I in my mind too. I'm thinking like you know, air guard and flying. You know, it's pretty much like a more or less active duty. You're there's something going on every single day of mm-hmm. the week, and then the drill weekend where everyone comes in. But yeah, I could see that would take quite a while. And how long did you say again it took you to go through that pre-selection process? I got accepted. I believe it was. September of 09 and I got to the actual selection in July of 2010. So just shy of a year to be able to even go get to the the point where they'll judge you and make, see if you're good enough. So yeah, it, it was, it, it was crazy. And in the meantime, I'm back at home with my family. Um, I got a part-time job at a bar just to make a couple bucks here and there. I and mean, when I was training and we have a mountain here in Tucson called Mount Lemons, 9,000 feet tall. And, three times a week, I started at the the middle and I would just ruck up and I would ruck with 45, 65 pounds on my back to go straight uphill for three to six miles and see how quick I could get it and then come back down. And that was part of my training three days a week. I'd go, I'd go to, in, in Arizona, we have these things called washes where the, the rivers, like seasonal rivers will run through, like if we get storms, but typically they're dry and it's just all beach sand, you know, six, eight inches of beach sand. I just go walk with a heavy ruck on my back through the sand just to get that suck factor because I knew that it was going to be really, really sucky come when I went to the selection process at Fort Bragg. Man. So, you know, when I, when I take away from what you just said there, right, you had a a really long-term goal and you're balancing everything else that's going on in your life with girlfriend, wife, or transition period, you know, providing for the family, working the job that is paying the bills. And then meanwhile, commuting once a month to Utah trying to prove yourself for selection. Like that takes an incredible amount of dedication to just stay on the path and get after it. I think what I try to say is like taking that lesson learned and no matter what you're doing, like it's a prime example. If you're in business, trying to get selected for special forces, Mm -hmm. be a pilot, whatever it is, it just, it takes a hell of a lot of work if you really want to pursue something and do it well. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't say, I don't know. Maybe I would say I'm, I'm borderline obsessive when it comes to things that I really want. Like when it's a goal, it's, I have a hard time not going all out on it and just putting everything I have into it. And luckily I have a great family that understands and supports me through these things. Um, Cause that, that's just what life was. And you know, the family's like, cool, we got you. We're going to support you through this process, which made life very much better than it could have been if it was, you know, a sticking point. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we work together pretty well. Yeah, uh, that's good to hear. And yeah, I think anyone who's like going to be successful, you kind of have to, you have to have that drive, right? Unless you're just lucky. And I don't think that just exists. You just have to push through. And then like you said, I mean, the families are really the ones who sacrifice. That's what I've always said is, you know, you're bounce around working on getting to your goal, but that's requiring a lot of your time being focused on that and not focused on the family. So, uh, the families usually just, they don't get enough credit, but, um, Oh my God. No. Yeah. Again, that's like a whole nother, I mentioned it before in another podcast, like that could be a whole nother Absolutely. podcast in itself, what they, <laughs> what they go through. So, um, you, so you go make it through to selection, right? Mm-hmm. What, what is that? What's next after that? So, um, 
it's a long process. So there's, there's <laughs> basically, there's, there's more gates, checkpoints, whatever you want to call it along the process, just to get to earn that right to wear the green beret. So following selection, if you're not airborne qualified, they send you to airborne school. So for me, I went in, I think I said July, I was, I was mistaken. I went in June of 2010 to selection. I came back home. My first daughter was born in July of 2010. I keep, sorry, miss June, 2010 selection, July, 2010, my first daughter was born. And then August, 2010, I went to airborne school back at Fort Benning. So I flew back and forth several times because I had to get airborne qualified. And then after that, we PCS and moved to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, in November, same year. So we had two months to get all that stuff ready. The whole family came with me. My wife took a leave of absence on her job so we could raise our daughter. We moved, got an apartment um, at Fort Bragg. And then from that point, it was just shy of two years of training. So I had, I mean, it, it's a lot because they, they mold you into like an all around um, operator, whatever you want to call it, um, just a special forces soldier. So you have to start out, you got to go to a leadership school where they teach you advanced leadership techniques because being a Green Beret, one of the tenets of it is leading foreign troops, training them, advising them, leading them when necessary. So you have to be identified as being able to lead, which is huge. So you got to go to a leadership course and then you have to um, go to what's called small unit tactics, which is, which is um, our version of a ranger school where they teach you the basics of patrolling, ambushes, raids, land navigation, carrying a ruck, managing men when you're out on missions for you know up to two weeks, beating off MREs. Um, you have to learn a language. So the language is regional, regionally specific. And so for 19th group at that time, we were focusing on uh, Southeast Asia. So I learned Indonesian uh, for four months. Um, we were sitting in a classroom eight hours a day learning Indonesian, which was really cool. Wow. Um, after that, we had to go to SEER school where you learn how to sur survive, evade, resist, and escape um, in the event you're a prisoner of war. And then after that, I went to a um, six-month uh, course where I was taught to be a communications expert. So like you have to know how to work on a variety of radios, um, ranging from stuff in a in a more urbanized, like a base, a, a joint base environment, or like an austere environment where you're in the middle of nowhere and you need to send communications out without being captured, or without giving away your location. Um, you had to learn how to uh, connect with satellites and use satellite um, communications, computers, networking, IT stuff, the whole, anything that had to do with communications, um, we had to know because we had to support our team. Like say you're in a country and you need to be able to contact somebody back stateside and you don't have a cell phone, you don't have satellite communications, how are you going to do it? So it was really cool. And then after that, they culminated with an exercise called Robin Sage. It's two weeks and you take everything that you've learned over the past two years, you do a full mission profile exercise where you, you and your team of 12 guys, you plan a mission, you go into a fake country called Pineland, you got to go help liberate it, link up with a, a local insurgent or a guerrilla force and train with them at a camp and run through scenarios where they test all your problem solving skills, your endurance, your land navigation, your physical fitness, all of it, all, every tenet of it. And then um, if you successfully complete that while you're being graded and evaluated, then, you know, after you've done that, then you, then you earn the right to wear the green beret. But at that point, that's when the real training starts. It's like graduating high school and you're like all excited. Yeah. Yeah. But really you have the rest of your life and you're still yeah. the new guy in the block. So the, yeah, it's like, it is, it is just begun. And that's like when you hear pilot wings, like congrats, like now you have your ticket to learn. <laughs> I assume there were some washbacks, but 
how many people did you start with and how many people finished? What was that completion rate or attrition rate? What did it look like? Man. So, um, there's an old song, um, talks about, uh, the ballad of the green beret, only a hundred men will try out and only one man will actually end up earning the right to wear it. And it's pretty, it's pretty accurate. Really? Um, the, the attrition rate is huge. Um, it, I mean, simply, simply when I went to selection in June in North Carolina, that's hot, it's humid. You're going to be doing a lot of stuff in the heat and sweating. So you automatically know you're going to be dealing with heat casualties, whether it's heat stroke, heat exhaustion, something. Um, but then there's injuries, knee, ankle, back, whatever can happen. I think we started with, it's been a while, I think between four and 500 people at that selection class. And I think we ended with less than 200 just on that class. So then the, of the five, four or 500, 200 were selected to go further. And then you get into the actual course. Now that course demands everything of you. Academic is huge. You have to be able to sit in a classroom and learn. You have to be able to speak intelligent with someone. Um, you know, you could be really, really good in the field, but when it comes time to interact with that Colonel, that's your partner for us, you need to be able to interact with them properly. So it tests you across the board. And they, I think the attrition rate is huge. I would say maybe if I had to guess 25% would actually get their green break from who started with. So nobody in my selection class that I, I graduated with personally that I knew. So no kidding. Yeah. That, and, and even too, I think like backing up, just if you go all the way for like the genesis of when someone has an idea to be a green beret, you know, like, Hey, I, this is a good idea. Like, I mean, the pool is even larger, right? Is that you start narrowing that pyramid mm -hmm. that's upside down to all the way to the, the end result. Um, and you have, sorry, go ahead. I was, I was just going to say, you have to be in, in the, what makes it even a little bit more, uh, harder to get to is you have to be a senior NCO. So they have programs where they'll start people off the streets and bring them up. But by the time you're on a special forces ODA, a team, you are supposed to be an E6 and that's the lowest ranking person on the team. So they, they expect people that have, typically they want people that have experience to get through it. And so that it like decreases everything exponentially too. So this is a cliche and ignorant of me to ask, but like, so between a seal and a green beret, I know some people would be asking the differences besides the blatant one of army and the Navy, but even like on a SEAL team is E6 kind of like the minimum or can guys go straight into a SEAL team after a little bit of time in the Navy? Mm. So that excellent question. Um, there's a program in the army called the 18 X-ray. So the 18 is the number identifier for our job. So for any SF person, you have an 18 alpha, Bravo, Bravo, Charlie, echo, Delta Fox. And that just means what your job is, whether it's medic, comma, whatever. But the 18 X-ray is what they something they started. I think it was either right before, or right after the Iraq, uh, Iraq invasion, um, because they needed some more people and they wanted to get qualified qualified folks off the street that would fit the bill. Um, but the problem is that they didn't have the time to take them all the way to E6, which is th this is this is the conundrum that we're in. Is where one of the tenets of special forces is that. Um, uh, green brace cannot be mass produced in a time of emergency. So what that means is you need to prepare prior to for an emergency. But the problem is, is we get short staff because of the high op tempo rate. People, people get out because it's burning them out or move into staff positions or just over expanding the mission set. That's a whole other uh, conversation. But they started the 18 X-ray program to bring highly motivated elite physical fitness, super smart people from the street and bring them to the pipeline. And then they would get to the team as an E5 and hopefully pretty quick gives them as a six. Um, 
the goal being having a six as the lowest person on the team. But for the SEALs, I, from what I understand, I'm not an expert, but I believe that you can be E3 or I don't know what you would graduate as, but I believe that um, I think you can be a lower ranking on a SEAL team. Um, but that's just, everybody's got different plans, you know? I mean, obviously the Navy right. SEALs put us some stellar performers, so it's just different across the board. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you graduate, you're Green Beret, and then uh, I want to get to December 4th, 2016. I said it was a pivotal moment in your life, but between graduating and that day, what did a day in the life of Caleb look like? So I, uh, my, my goal was to always go to ascend to the active duty special forces. That's something that my wife and I talked about quite a bit because I love the job and, I'll, and for me, in my mindset, I was like, I just want to do it full time. However, going from reserve to active duty is a little bit different. And so since I knew people in the 19th group, it made it easier for me to transition. And my goal was to get experience and create a, like essentially a resume of me being a good Green Beret in the in National Guard and then ascend to the active duty because it's what I loved. And um, so that was, that was always a goal. However, you know, when I'm back home and I'm not on a mission, I'm not training, I need to bring some money in. So um, shortly after I got back, I went through the police academy here in Tucson and became a cop and um, did that for about eight months and very quickly realized that that just wasn't for me. And I know that there is the option for the soldier sailor act to protect your job when you're training, but then our, our op tempo at that time was huge. We had, we had tons of training missions. We had tons of uh, a local CONUS training opportunities that needed to be filled. And there was an, a, a need because the National Guard was being used a lot. So I quit being a police officer and essentially became what's called a guard bum, where you go from orders to orders to orders and they have tons of opportunities and you make good money and you get a lot of experience because people that had full-time jobs that they were staying with couldn't, couldn't just up and leave for six months every single year. So I had, I was essentially just going from orders and training and learning a lot and going to some great schools. We ended up going to Africa and Southeast Asia a couple of times, training with some of their forces. Um, but I just, I did a lot of working out. I was outdoors off-roading with my truck and shooting family, man. And it was, it was busy. Yeah. Very, very busy. The, um, and for those listening, you mentioned like guard bum and I got a lot of buddies who guard bum and to you and me, it seems, you know, I mean, that's, that's our language, but no kidding. We do have people who are in the military, they're guard or reserve that could be more or less full time, but they're operating on like a 15 day set of orders or 30 days or 90 days, but there's not a, like an active duty person where it's you're in and you're in, you're kind of bouncing be between being a civilian and being in the military while you're doing it. So, um, that kind of leads us up. You're, let's go to December 4th, 2016. You're in Sagan, uh, in Helmand province in Afghanistan. I spent a lot of time flying over it. Um, I cannot imagine what it would be like being on the ground there, but you obviously have that experience. So, uh, can you kind of talk the beginning of that deployment leading up to that day, uh, the mission that you were on that day and then what transpired? Yeah, absolutely. And, it, uh, um, just as a caveat, it was a uh, 2015, 2015. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But uh, so, so we in the national guard, we wanted to, we're always looking to be part of the fight. Right. And, and obviously the priority goes to the active duty. So whenever an opportunity to deploy came up for uh, to a national guard SF unit, 
everybody volunteers, everybody wants to go. So we had been um, volunteering for a couple of years now. This was the fourth trip that our whole team had volunteered for. And the first three fell through um, for reasons unknown to us. So we were really, really pumped up and excited to get boots on the ground for this trip. Um, this was, we got word in the beginning of 2015 that we were going to be deployed to Afghanistan. So our team and our, our unit started preparing, getting everybody's trainings up to date. And they sent me to the 18th Fox course at Fort Bragg, which is four months of to reclass my job into um, assistant operations and intelligence on the team. So it'd be the number two enlisted guy on the team. And I'd be in charge of um, all the intel on the ground, looking for the bad guys, where they're at, developing um, assets to uh, go and you know study them, get some information on them, and then executing the mission. So it was a great job, and it melded in really well with what I did in the regular army with intelligence. Except for now, I was on a team. I was super excited about it. So in the beginning of 2015, they sent me to, for that. So I was gone for four months, January to April, and then when I got back, we had a four-month train up, um, a bunch of places across the states getting ready for it, and so I was gone almost all of 2015. And we, um, between the deployment and the training, um, but we got to Afghanistan in, I believe it was July, August timeframe, 2015. And we went in there knowing that things were going to be weird. It wasn't going to be the same as it was before because the beginning of 2015, they changed the mission to resolute support, which wasn't operation enduring freedom. So all the rules of engagement changed, how you're going to act and what you could and couldn't do changed. Um, the politics were very they were very focused on the area because basically the the governments, both sides, Afghan and the U.S., wanted to see Afghanistan succeed. They wanted to see the Afghan military succeed and be able to take over for themselves and become self-sufficient. So we went in there knowing, hey, you're most likely going to be staying at the base. You're going to train, advise, and assist from the office. You can't you can't really give them support as much as you're used to in the past, and you want to you want to basically push them out the nest and see what they can do. That didn't work. Um, unfortunately, uh, things started to deteriorate rather quickly. Uh, I was, there was a lot of incidents there. I mean, I, we were there during the Kunduz incident when there was the, 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 the Doctors Without Borders hospital strike, which is still under investigation. A lot of things changed while we were there. We went there expecting not to go out, but because of the quickly deteriorating security situation with the Taliban went on a huge offensive. Um, and then also ISIS started to get into the mix that year. So we ended up having a lot of restrictions lifted and we ended up going out a lot. The thing is at that time in Afghanistan, we'd done the troop drawdown. So the support that a lot of people are used to seeing where those little fobs and bases open up, you know, you have your air support, medevac everywhere. That was non-existent. So when we were in Helmand, Helmand province, we, we were up um, in camp, camp Leatherneck, essentially. We were in a little special forces fob at the North end called Camp Antonic. Um, we were one of very few places in that province that had Americans in it. The only other place was down south, a place called Camp Dwyer, but they weren't actively doing anything. So when they say when they said, hey, you need to go out and do stuff, we we had run in the mill. We had open access to all of Helmand as long as we could we could safely justify it. So we were everywhere. We were driving and flying all over the place and doing missions everywhere. We went to Kajaki because the Taliban ended up starting an offensive on that dam. And so the contract workers stopped working and left, made national news, and they said, hey, go secure the dam. So we were there for a while. We went um, down in this place called Marja, super bad area. A lot of Marines lost their lives in Marja during the, during the surge there. And the place was just a ghost town aside from the Taliban and the, and the military there. So we went down there and fought for a couple of weeks 
had some crazy adventures. We, um, we went to, um, Musa Kalar and all, all these, it was just, it was very 180 from what we had expected. So, um, it's just, it's hard to put it into, into words because when you're in this area where there's a huge risk and you're the only ones in there, it, it makes you super, super alert. But at the same time, you have to be aggressive because if you're not aggressive, then you can easily get choked into a corner. That, and so, um, yeah, I'm going back to like thinking the time I was in Afghanistan in 2012 with the Brits and the Marines being there in Helmand and just how busy the Helmand province was, um, especially like all the narco traffickers. It seemed like it was summertime, uh, the poppy uh, opium season where they, they would come up from Pakistan into that region. But you guys are, I mean, it's more or less just you. That's what you're saying at this time frame. Cause again, mm-hmm. I, it's like we had, we had won the war with some air quotes there, but we didn't, we didn't really win the war, man. I, uh, all, all our support came from Kandahar and that. So uh, you want to go out on a mission, your, your air, your medevac or your air, your birds are all coming from Kandahar. So they're an hour out, hour and a half, depending on where you're at. So really limited on what we were, we could do. Cause you have to have that golden hour of a medevac window where if somebody gets hurt, they have to be back to a stage. I can't remember the stage, a uh, surgical location where they have actual surgical staff within one hour. Cause that they did studies and that cuts down on the number of people that actually die. So what we ended up doing is we would forward stage our surgical teams with us because we had to go further and further out. So we had a orthopedic surgeon, general surgeons and their whole staff, they would fly and forward stage with us. So it would, in, it would increase that, that window of saving somebody's life in the event that something happened. Were you guys, were you going after like high value targets uh, running drugs and weapons or were you just, I mean, it was a mix of everything, looking for weapons, looking for ID factories. Like what was the, what was the focus at that time? That's an excellent question because at that time, unfortunately, the, the, the combined effort in the whole country, there is a, there was, I think, a lack of a clear goal. And it's unfortunate because everybody wanted to let the Afghans take over. But, but then when the det- situation started deteriorating, we became super reactionary. So for instance, in, in Helmand, there's the 215th Army Corps where they have all their military, the army guys. Then you have the local police. We were training the 7th SOC, the commandos essentially. And the 215th Corps at that time was so incredibly ineffective and they were beefing up their numbers through reports just so they could get more money that the commandos that we were training, was 120 of them, were the only maneuver force in all of Helmand province. So they were tasked to do everything. They were checkpoint security. They were PSD for the high level commanders. We were doing um, hits on HVIs. Um, we were doing raids and, and clearing ops, like everything. So there was no there was no specific, hey, go after these guys or whatever. We were left to just don't let Helmet fall apart because the districts, they kept saying they were on fire is kind of the term that we're coining. But the, the Taliban would essentially just come in and surround each district let all the civilians and whatever army guys wanted to come out. And then they would just kind of close in and choke it until they were able to take it over. So they're like, just don't let Helmand fall. And this is a, obviously it's a really complex problem. We haven't won. We haven't solved it. Um, But from your perspective during that time, working with the Afghans and training them and, uh, and being in bed with them, because I'm assuming you did raids with them Mm -hmm. and brought and going out on patrols. How was that? What, you know, I, I think the green on blue, so Afghans shooting Americans has been a thing for a while, and that's always a threat. Yeah. I mean, how much were you concerned about those guys having being inside insider Taliban into the mix, mm-hmm. things like that? What, 
What was the vibe? Oh, we were hundred percent on, on alert for that. It's unfortunate. So we actually had a green on blue incident on our trip. Um, the, the commandos that we were training, the seventh sock were just basically known to be pretty dirty. And that's, I think that's because of the nature of where they're at, because Hellman and Kandahar typically was the Taliban's homeland. So you're working with a lot of guys that potentially could have come from the Taliban or could be influenced by the Taliban because once Americans or once the U.S. pulls out, the Taliban's still there. They're, they're kind of trying to plan their future, right? So there could be the blackmail where, where the Taliban are like, we're going to kill your family if you don't do what we want you to do. So historically, that area is super dirty. So we were on alert from the get-go, but we did have a green on blue incident three days in a country. We lost two Americans. And I, I think it was somewhere between 10 and 14 people were injured as we were crossing the checkpoint and a guy opened up with a AK 47. So it was bad. So from, and, and the thing is it was the exact same group of people that we were training with. It was the commando. So at that, so you have this, you have this kind of like a dilemma. You, you have these guys that just shot you up and killed some of your guys. You have the, the Hellman province slowly deteriorating, and then you have your higher command telling you you guys need to go out and conduct operations. So at the same time, we're trying to vet our guys to find out who's dirty and who's not, but at the same time, we go out on missions. So what ended up happening is we, we found out that we were safer on a mission with these guys than we were back at the base because they needed us to stay alive. They needed our air support where we could give it. They needed all our guns because we'd go, we'd go spikes out every time. Um, they needed us. And then once they found out that we were going to help them to survive, things got a little better. But in the beginning for the first little while, it was awful because in our own base, we're on alert. Like we had to increase our base security because we they were getting intel reports that these guys were planning on doing more green on blues. It was, it was a nightmare in the very beginning. Were you guys eating with them? I know they're probably not, obviously not you know, same sleeping quarters and things like that, but you're integrated into a team more or less. Mm-hmm. I cannot imagine the dynamics of what it took to overcome, to like push out the gate with these guys. Cause if they just yeah, shot, it, shot up your buddy, I mean, it's uh, yeah. So it, it, man, it was hard. So basically we had a little tiny fob called camp Antonic. And then outside of that fob was our commando. Um, they were, they surrounded us like with their fob we were inside them. Um, and then there was the different layers of camp bastion, camp leatherneck and all that stuff. Um, we would, we made every effort that we could to go out and eat with them knowing that, there's dudes that probably want to kill us. And we even, and we even got um, some face-to-face interactions with some elite Afghan special forces units saying that, Hey, we're not even going to sleep in the same room as these guys. Cause they're super dirty and they want to, they want to kill you. So we, we just, we try, I mean, you don't have a choice. You have to, and that's what we were trained to do is work with these guys. So we, everybody, we carried guns around everywhere we were at. We increased our base security. We vetted everybody um, and just did what we could. But, were I mean we ate with them and we we had to meet with them every day because we were training them. I had to work with their their intelligence section and I mean it was just you're on you're on 150 percent of alert all day every day because of that. Especially you're in the base and the stress and strain that puts on the the team. I can't even imagine because you're gonna have I mean if I was put in that situation, there's no way I'd want to go work with these dudes. So over, I guess, pushing through that and doing what the, you know, Hey, the mission is this and going out there and getting after it and figuring out a way to work around that problem is, is incredible. And obviously that's why <laughs> green Berets or green Berets, man. That's cool. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's tough. Um, we, and we learned, uh, so that when I was talking about us going down into Marja, 
that was that was the there was a couple other missions prior to that that helped things a little bit, but that was the one that solidified it um, because it's it's just weird. So we we were planning a huge mission to go after a, a big high level target with our guys, 120 commandos. We're getting our trucks ready. Going to be a huge ground infill, a clearing operation, and the I think it was the next morning, two mornings prior to us having to leave on the operation, we just woke up and all the commandos were gone. All 120 of them were gone. And we're like, what in the heck, where are they at? And then we got, we got word that a high level colonel from the Afghan 215th Corps, he took them as his personal security, all 120 of them, personal security. And they drove all the way down into Marja, which Marja is a nasty area, IEDs everywhere. And they drove down into Marja and we got reports they were getting into huge firefights. So we're like, well, gotta go get them can't just sit here while they're while they're getting hammered down there so we drove down there behind enemy lines clearing ieds dropping bombs gunfights left and right got into marja like at night and we essentially we essentially rescued them so that when i say that the taliban were choking in on the town imagine a town you know maybe five ten thousand people of a town completely empty and then there's this ring of taliban around it that were at checkpoints slowly working their way in a grid pattern, setting up IEDs and choking in one tiny um, military compound in the center. They were mortaring every day. You're getting 10 to 20 mortars every single day and they're setting up IEDs. So we drove in and we found out that the Taliban had mounted an ambush on that um, compound. They took, they set up ladders on the side of the compound. They're climbing it. They had night vision and IR lasers and were just killing guys around like a big slaughter. They managed the uh, commandos managed to fend them off after losing, I think, like 20 guys. But they were so scared of the Taliban that they wouldn't even push the ladders off the wall. So when we drove in, these ladders are sitting on the outside of the wall. And we just were like, what in the heck? So we just ran and pushed them off. And then we stayed with them down in Marjorie for like two weeks, um, fighting to create white space and go out. And we were getting mortared, like very accurate mortar fire every single day and fight RPGs, gunfire every single day. And that, at that point, the commander's like, oh my God, they saved our lives. And I think that was the huge rapport change right there um, at that point because we felt a lot better laughing with them, interacting with them a lot more after that. But we, we, since the commandos are not a, a stationary element, they are, a, they are a rea- not a reactionary, but they're meant to go and hit targets and move back. They're not meant to stay in position. Well, since there's nobody to guard all those checkpoints, they put the commandos on the checkpoint, but then the, our commander said, hey, you guys got to get out of there. So we went to go pull out and the regular Afghan army guys got so mad that they all started shooting at us and trying to trying to kill us as we were leaving. They claimed they're going to take us to court, that we're leaving them to die and blah, blah, blah. And they just started shooting at us as we were leaving. And I'm just like, dude, oh we're my. fighting the enemy and the friendly guys on the way out. Oh it was my crazy. gosh. Dude, and that's... You know, in the end, I, I, the reason doing this podcast is like the story you just told, like just that right there. There's so much, there's so many complexities and so many dynamics that go into that. And it, we're talking dudes who are 18 to 34 years old, probably on average, right? Who are going out there for their country and dealing with these these incredibly difficult scenarios that are life-threatening. At, at a moment's notice, they're getting shot in the back of the head by someone they're instructed to, to teach or train. Um, and I think it's important for people to hear that kind of stuff because it does get lost in the noise of the news. Right. And this is a part of our history and we have to capture it because 
I, no, no, I kind of get lost. We get, everyone gets so wrapped up in poor, pitiful me, poor, pitiful me. And like my life's tough, but like, I have nothing to complain about, you know, like most of us have nothing to complain about. So, um, hearing stories like that, it really solidifies, I think hammer home, hammer home, hammer home is a point for me. Like I cannot complain about a single thing, right? My life is pretty cushy here in the United States. It's still ongoing. There's guys out there every day, you know, still doing it. And, you know, focus media attention goes elsewhere because of whatever, you know, is an important topic of the day, but it's, it's not ending. And I don't think it will end anytime soon because there's always going to be people abroad that wish us harm. And that means that there will be people here that have to go abroad and stop them from doing it. And it's not going to end. It's just the way it is. Yeah. Just have to not forget about those guys out there. Yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking, I kind of looked, I was at, while you were talking through some of it, I was looking back at, uh, I had a journal for my deployment, which, um, we're about six months off more or less, but, uh, I showed up and to fight ISIS and Iraq and Syria just right. But that was like the, that was the thing at that point. And then by the time, you know, you're deployed, ISIS is starting to migrate and even the you know, caliphate's mm-hmm. growing and stuff. So it's such a complex problem, but, um, yeah. Oh man. Um, so kind of now get into December 4th, 2015, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yes. So, so, um, what was going on leading up to the mission of that day? And can you talk me through what that mission was and what happened? So, so December of 2015, um, a large majority of the districts, um, districts are like counties for us, but districts inside of Helmand province were falling. Um, Taliban were taking them and all the military were retreating. So one of the ones that was being hit pretty hard is this one called Sangin district. And Sangin is a key check, a, a key terrain feature all along a major highway that parallels the river and it goes north and south on Helmand. It's a, it's a, it's been a contested area since, you know, years and years and years, even when the Russians were in there. But, um, saying it's known as a hotbed for Taliban. It's known as a, a place where a lot of people get blown up. The IEDs are pretty, they're pretty hot and heavy in there. So whenever I talk to somebody, I'm like, yeah, we can, we can kind of like fist bump and be like, yeah, singing buddies, banging and singing. But, um, so we, <laughs> we were, uh, we were planning an operation, um, potentially to, it was a du- it was a duel. We were going after a target and we got information that there were a bunch of IDs, potentially an IED factory facility in this area. So we, we got a couple teams together, all 120 commandos, and we were doing a large clearing operation. So we dropped in um, with helicopter um, Chinooks under the cover of darkness. We separated our groups and started clearing, anticipating contact and looking for this, uh, this target that we were trying to get. Um, we found a couple compounds and nothing in it. And then we came to one compound and we looked and there was, I think there's red spray paint on the outside of it. There's a little barbed wire on the side to the entrance and there were a bunch of rocks and our interpreter was like, that's the Taliban's way of telling the locals don't go in there. That's our place. If you go in there, you're going to get hurt. So obviously we can't leave it because there's likely IDs in there. We got to clear them. Um, but I was, I was fortunate on my element. I had a couple Americans. I had a, um, an explosive dog and his handlers. So they were, they were trained to go after and find bombs so that we could clear it. I also had a local guy that had a handheld minesweeper and we paid him for every single IED that he found. So he was, excuse me, he was very motivated to find IEDs. <laughs> and brilliant. brilliant. Yeah. I mean, you, you get paid for ID. Now the problem sometimes 
happen is that they would plant fake IEDs and like, oh, I found this. I'm like, no, I saw that one yesterday. No, you don't get paid for yeah, that no, one. Yeah. <laughs> and we had an EOD guide, explosive ordnance disposal tech on our team. So we had, we were stacked on um, and ready to go into that compound. And I, ha- I can't remember, I had 20 or so uh, Afghan commandos with us and my interpreter. So we immediately started the, the, our bomb techs to clear it. And we found two booby traps, their uh, wood pressure plate linked to double stacked artillery rounds which would have been a nasty explosion found those and cleared those and then we found a a, a little a con or sh- i guess it would be a shack inside this large compound and it had a bunch of pressure plates i'm talking like a a, a pile two to three feet tall and probably five feet wide of wood pressure plates at a huge pile and then in the corner there were a bunch of explosives we found an efp in there really rudimentary but it was weird because efp is a type of IED or IED that's usually in Iraq. And, and it's something that is very widely known to have come from Iran. It's, it's basically a copper disc inside of a tube. And as the explosive blows the copper disc, it, it expands and then forms a projectile and it punctures through things. Not typically seen in Afghanistan, but it was kind of odd. Never got a chance to think about it again until now. But so we, uh, we found those, marked them down, and then we started clearing the rest of the compound. We found a huge building that was fresh that the the Taliban had just left there was an escape tunnel down and it went out and under the the wall um, we didn't go through that because they probably set up some kind of traps or something in there but um then the the building that was there was i guess their shop like manufacturing shop of IEDs they had little initiating devices and camouflage and hiding devices all over there was a room there's a probably 30 by 30 square foot room and the whole floor was covered in stuff it was literally it looked like trash but it was all stuff that they were going to use to hide these IEDs. And it was a pretty big operation. So we found the initiating devices, the hiding devices. We found the, the pressure plates. Now we're looking for the homemade explosives or the C4, whatever they're going to use to blow it up. So the last thing that was left up in um, that compound was a tiny little shack. And so per procedure, you got to send in your assets to clear it first because we cleared everywhere we walked. You walk from point A to point B out in an operation. You have somebody clear it with a minesweeper or a dog because you never know what you're going to step on. So I sent in, I think it was four or five Afghans into that little shack. I sent my interpreter with them to relay back to me. The bomb dog and the handler went in the shack. And then the guy with the handheld minesweeper walked in the shack. They all started to yell in commotion. And then the interpreter relayed that, hey, we found some some bombs or whatever. So I, also, so I said, okay, cool. So I walked in because they'd cleared everything. I walked in the shack. There's a hole in the corner. And it was probably about a foot deep and there was a bunch of white powdery substance. Because of the situation, it's likely that it was uh, homemade explosives because that's what it looks like. So I said, okay, cool. We found the third factor, all, every component needed to create an IED. So I was like, all right, I got to step outside this shack and make a radio call and let, you know, our, our, uh, the element leader, what's going on. And as I stepped out, I stepped on an IED that was in the threshold. It was a pressure plate, which for anybody that doesn't know what a pressure plate is, it's, it's like a, two pieces of wood, imagine like two, two by fours flat against each other. And then they have something that resists them being squished together, like a spring, or in this case, it was foam. What happens is when you step on it, the pressure plates connect and there's, there's pieces of perforated uh, metal on the insides of it and they touch each other and complete the circuit. So I stepped on that. However, everybody stepped on it. I even stepped on it probably beforehand and nothing went off. So I don't know, it could have been, it just didn't get enough pressure on it to actually complete the circuit or maybe we just barely stepped off it all i know is that i stepped on it on the way out and then i just i was like a 
like a shock explosion. Everything went black, stars thrown in the air, fall down. I'm like, what, what happened? All of a sudden I come to you and I look and I see the damage on my legs and it was pretty bad. Um, I saw my, on my right side, I saw basically from my kneecap up, my foot was gone and I saw just a very cleanly polished bone. It ended up being like my tib or fib or something like that on the right side, just sticking out on the left side. My left leg was like in pieces, like just, it was there, but it was in pieces. So instantly I'm, uh, you know, I'm in shock. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm going to die freaking out. Cause you try to move. I tried to move and they wouldn't move. There's nothing there to move. So I, I feel like I'm going to die. And then all of a sudden, and I don't know if this is by the grace of God, it probably is. And it's, it has to do with how well our medics trained us, but training kicked in and I have no idea how I got to have that wherewithal to do it. But I started trying to treat myself. I pulled out my fentanyl lollipop out of my IFAC because we had trained one-handed. My right hand was all jacked up. I almost lost a couple fingers later on because of it. So I pulled out my IFAC and I got my fentanyl lollipop. I started sucking away because of the pain, grabbed a tourniquet, started to put it on my right leg. And then all of a sudden, everybody starts coming to me. All my, all my people start helping me out. Um, my medics and everybody was with me on the spot. <laughs> this so the sun was coming up and that was a factor in why we were clearing this we were trying to i wouldn't say we were rushing but we knew that we had to clear this compound because most taliban don't have or whoever was there fighting us don't have night vision goggles so they fight once the sun comes up sun so we had about an hour once we first got in that compound by the time i got blown up the sun was rising they and so they start shooting pop shots and rpgs our way so right as i got hurt they hear the the explosion so they probably knew something happened then they start attacking us so as these guys are treating me, everybody else is on the walls shooting Carl Gustafs and firing some suppressive fire to keep these guys at bay because they knew they had to medevac me. Um, and because of the explosion, everybody in that shack was injured. My interpreter lost both of his eyes. All the Afghans sustained shrapnel wounds. Um, the dog handlers sustained, sustained shrapnel wounds. The dog itself um had severe rear leg issue and everybody thought he lost his tail but that he was they were able to reattach it in surgery it was bad it was a mass cal and it's something that people don't like to talk about because mass cals throw everything into chaos when it comes to treating the wounded and we had trained mass cal my my medic on my team the 18 delta he was the man he'd been through a lot of stuff and he trained us in medicine to the core and it really saved us kept everybody collected to be able to to do this so um the team members came and treated me. They put, uh, they put me up to a line of ketamine cause I was starting to get some really bad pain. And then, uh, they popped me out of there and then they had a helicopter come and land during the firefight in another compound and picked me up and scooped me and brought me to Kandahar for surgery after that. It was crazy. It was just mass chaos after that. So, man, that is just insane. But like talk about like the, the training and just like, that's like the most extreme situation of just falling back on your training, which is like amazing to hear that. And then, um, everyone coming together, how long, so when you got medevac, do you know how long the remainder of your team was in there in the firefight or was everyone out of there pretty quick? Once, once you were out and the rest of the casualties, <laughs> they, they stayed, they stayed for at least a day or two after that. They, they tried to finish the mission. Um, yeah, that's awesome. they, they, they did their best to try to drop a JDAM on that compound because they don't want that to be a, a IED factory going forward. But the problem is, is you're in the middle of a town. And even though the town is that section of the town was evacuated, 
there's still the risk of civilian casualties. So they had to go back and forth. And finally, they found a way to blow it in place. They set up a bunch of explosives and just killed a bit, blown in place. Um, but after that, they had to finish a bunch of the mission and clear more. So they stayed for another day. And before the second day, they finally got it exfilled out of there. So you still got to continue the mission if something happens. It's, uh, you don't take a scrape and then just get out of there. You continue on. So, yeah. Yeah. So the job has got to get done. So were you the only, only American or I guess you and the dog handler were the two Americans that were wounded in mm-hmm. that IED explosion. Mm-hmm. And then, um, how big of a rest was a contingent that was holding that compound and, and finishing the mission? I don't, I don't know how many people stayed in that compound. I think they marked it off as a danger area and just secured it from the outside since yeah. we had cleared two or three IEDs already. And then there's that one right there that ever, that we all missed. So they didn't want to risk it again. So they, they pulled everybody out and just secured it. Didn't let any Afghans in. Um, but it was, yeah, myself and the dog handler. Luckily he just got shrapnel um, on his back. It was superficial, which is good because it could have been bad. And, and it's not the most, it's not, it's not something that's easy to say, but like all the shrapnel, that was me. That was my bone. So it wasn't like ball bearings or anything. All the shrapnel that came to everybody was me getting blown up and then thrown into their skin, which is, it's just sad. I mean, it could have been worse if it was metal objects, but still. Yeah. And it was a tiny shack. So the whole overpressure expanded and collapsed inside the shack. So everybody got probably worse off than they would have been if they weren't inside a closed area. Gosh. Okay. So you're, you're medevac to Kandahar. What's happening with you at Kandahar? So the, our, our forward surgical teams that, that I talked about earlier, the orthopedic surgeon, the surgeons and their staff, they were, they just rotated back from our base camp Antonic, to Kandahar. So we were super close with them. It was a husband wife combo. There's both surgeons, um, Jerry and Linda Benavidez, and they worked on me for a long, long time, long time. With the, they, they, their, their goal is to save my left leg. Cause it was there. They're like, we're going to save this leg. We're going to save his knee because it's going to be better for him walking and going forward. And they worked on me for hours. And I think, and I don't know the timeline and I don't know the, the standards, but I know that they, they are, somebody else told me that surgeons have a point after a certain amount of blood has been given that they say it's not worth going forward because of the risk. And I think because they cared so much, like we're going to save him. And it worked further, which is something that I'll be thankful for every because they saved my left knee, which is huge. Um, they worked on me for a long time. And and I think I had between 50 and 60 blood transfusions just in that surgery alone. And then I had more as I went stateside. But they worked on me for a long time. Um, then from Kandahar, I went to Germany. And I don't know at what point, but at that, that point, they realized We've like in the past, we have lost a lot of people, not from blood loss, but because of the bacterial and the fungal infections in the ground there, because we're not, we don't have the same immunities that they do on that side of the world. So they preemptively put me on whatever strongest antibiotics they had and antifungals in the world and kept me quarantined. Essentially, people had to scrub in to come even just see me for probably about three weeks because that stuff almost killed me. And then um, from Germany, I flew over to. Uh, Walter Reed as a quick st- uh, stop by because I was going to end up in Walter Reed is in Washington, D.C. And I was eventually going to end up in San Antonio, Texas for my long term care. Well, from Germany to Walter Reed, I started tanking. I started I started I was like getting ready to die pretty much. And they come to find out that because of all the blood that I had been transfused and all the, the trauma to my body, 
blood clots from my legs and made their way up into my lungs. And I had four pulmonary embolisms that were over two centimeters big, which is bad. And so I was having trouble breathing. And so they had me in, intubated, which is like the breather down all the way in your lungs with these flanges. And the first thing I remember waking up in the airplane, so from point of injury, the first thing I remember waking up is them pulling the intubation tube out of my lungs. So it's all these flanges just all the way out of my mouth. And I felt like it was something from Neo from the matrix when he first came to life like that. That was the worst. Oh, that was the worst. Oh my gosh. So, yeah, it was pretty bad. Um, so, so from there we got to, to Walter Reed and they said, Hey, you're not going to Texas cause you're super critical. So they, they kept me there. Um, I had to go through bunches of surgeries to clean out my legs, wash out the infections. Um, I had to have surgery on my hand because my finger was almost gone. I had residual shrapnel. I'd gone into kidney failure. They had to put me on dialysis um, and all that. The, the fungal bacterial infections were super bad. So they kept me there for, I think, two weeks. And I kept, I kept just pushing. Them. I was like, I really want to go to Texas. I want to see my family because it's way closer to my family. So Christmas Eve, December 4th, 2015, they flew me to Texas. Um, on a, on a, I don't know if anybody uh, has ever had any experience with ketamine, but it's a pretty powerful painkiller. It, it's essentially a horse tranquilizer. Um, but for what I'm under, what I learned is that whatever mood mind state you're in, when you are administered it, that will be your mood mindset in your the fog of your mind. So I went into that thing, adrenaline pumping, gunfight stuff. So I'm having dreams about being back overseas. I'm making deals with the devil. I remember at one point I woke up in the hospital and I thought I was a prisoner. So I started ripping out all my lines and ripping everything out and freaking out and screaming. And my wife had to like come and like just jump on me and like call me down. And like, okay, it's okay. And then I just broke down and was like, started crying. I was like, what is going on? I don't know. And then I passed out. I don't remember anything after that. My it was God. crazy. I mean, ultimately, how long were you in the hospital? As an inpatient, I was, I got out January 9th. So December 4th to January 9th. So a little over a month. Which I think that. Which is kind of quick. Yeah. I was just going to say to me, that is incredible. Were you, I mean, obviously the doctor said you're ready to be released. Were you ready to be released? I didn't think so at the time. Um, when I was released in San Antonio, I was like, I just want to stay here. It's more comfortable. Um, but I really was ready to be released because I had good family support. And so what I found with the people that were taking care of me in San Antonio at the Center for the Intrepid, they'd seen a lot of people come through. And not to say that my, my mind was just normal, my injuries, but they'd seen a lot of people that came through with my injuries and much worse, you know, burns and stuff, triple and quadruple amputations. So they knew what to do. And so they pushed me appropriately to get me to be functional and more confident out in the world more so than I would have wanted at that time, because I feel like if they had let me, not to say coddled me, but if they had not pushed me as much, then I don't feel like I would have set that precedent to do what I'm able to do today. So they pushed me out of the hospital and um, they, the, the SOCOM Care Coalition, which is not really a nonprofit, but it's a, it's a organization that's for SOCOM elements who are injured and they help them. So they got me an apartment out in San Antonio, 45 minutes away. It was the closest one they could get, but I didn't really feel like staying in the Wounded Warrior bar barracks on base. So they, they put me in a hotel 45 minutes away. 
my wife, again, moved with our two kids now to San Antonio. And they took me to appointments every day. That was my duty, just go to appointments. And they, it just, it, it forced me to be out in the real world. You know, at first you're like, I don't want people to see me in wheelchairs. I hate looking at myself, you know, curb sucks. I can't do this and can't do that. But then you figure out how to do it and then it just becomes normal. And that right there was like the starting point for just not accepting myself, sitting around feeling bad for myself, just being lazy if I had the ability to take care of myself in some fashion, which is awesome. So I imagine, as you kind of alluded to there, like one, I can't even, I cannot imagine putting myself in your situation. So that's what I'm trying to understand it. What drove you to not just kind of say, poor pitiful me and this sucks and I don't know, sit in front of the TV all day, right? Because that, that'd be like the easy answer versus the way you took it and like went out to conquer, mm-hmm. conquer life as if nothing had happened or, you know, embrace, embrace, embrace it and move forward. Yeah. I, I would say, I mean, it's hard. There is no doubt about it. it. Every day is a struggle. Even up to this day, everything about it is just difficult. Um, and it may sound a little weird, but I look at it as a constant selection process. And I use that as my, as my reference point. Selection was one of the hardest things I've ever done, put my body through up until this point. And I use that as my reference point because I, like I said, I'm obsessed about when I want to do something. I feel like if I'm not obsessed, I'm going to be mediocre at it. And I heard that quote from a guy that I respect, but if I go all in. So for me, I see, hey, I have my daughter who at that time was just barely one. She'd only turned one. And my other daughter, my, so my oldest daughter has memories of us running and playing in the park, jumping on stuff. My youngest daughter doesn't know what's up. She's trying to help me put on my prosthetics, you know, as a joke. But then she's also wanting me to pick her up. And I, I, I remember breaking down and crying again because I, I can't even pick up my daughter from the ground because I can't even balance myself. I just, there's, there's these, these very vivid memories that help propel me forward. That is one of them trying to pick her up. The second one was walking at a park. And I remember I fell and my wife was there. My wife's super petite. She's five foot even. And she, we couldn't get up. I'd never been taught to get up. So I was walking with some crutches and I fell on my prosthetics. I'm just laying on the ground and we can't get me up. So three nine-year-old little boys came up and they just yanked me up off the ground, picked me up. Thank you for your service, sir. And tried to give me 20 bucks. And I was, <laughs> I, was I was floored. I, I just said, I was just, I was, it was floored to the bottom of my heart. And so I gave them the money back and said, go buy some ice cream or something. That's so kind of you. So I was like, I, at that point I was like, I will never ever fall and not be able to get up. And then that same day, they had like this little hill, grass hill, and it was just the easiest slope you could ever imagine, but I couldn't even walk up it. I kept falling over and tripping and almost falling on the ground. And I remember getting so frustrated and I was like, you know what, I'm going to walk up that dang hill. And so these things happen and I, and these obstacles. And what I've learned is that when I find an obstacle, it makes me very motivated to crush that obstacle and just break it down. So these things I found, I was like, I'm going to train, I'm going to train and train and train. And so that those goals and obstacles combined with my family being there with the, the military and the government providing me the best possible prosthetics I could have every resource they want to take care of me. I, I've been set on a path for success. And I feel like if I, if I don't, I'm squandering what has been given to me. 
and I'm squandering the memory of the dudes that died overseas because they died for something. And if I'm going to sit there and feel sorry for myself, just drinking or overdosing on my pills, then their memory to me is tarnished. So I have pictures up of them, of my close friends up on my gym wall, and I see them every day. And they're like a motivation for me to, to not stop. Like I have to keep on driving. Man, that's incredible, uh, Caleb. That really is. What uh, I'm going to ask you too, because I think people listening in, there are definitely going to be others out there who maybe did not go through the same situation that you went through, but have suffered some kind of trauma, some kind of defeat. There, I mean, there's some kind of obstacle. Because I think we're all, everyone is going through something at some point in their life. What would you say to them to help them get moving forward and attacking that problem or getting over that problem or in, in living life? This, so uh, initially, or firstly, there everybody has something, just like you said. There are problems that are seen, unseen, very apparent. Everybody's going through something. It could be physical, mental, emotional something in your family, anything. I train people with disabilities here at a gym at my house. And there's people that come to me and they're like, well, my stuff's not as bad as yours. I'm, I, there's nothing apparent. Like, it doesn't matter. Everybody's going through something. Um, so what I, I look at, I look at this situation and say, well, what are my two options? I could succumb to it and I could let it beat me because I'm not going to, I'm not going to put forth the effort or I'm going to, I'm going to work towards accomplishing goals and I'm going to beat this thing. So Goals are huge. I, I, I set goals. I have a board next to my bed, a whiteboard, and I write down my goals. I have long-term and short-term goals, uh, whether it's school, work, whether it's something I want to do in the gym, lift this amount of weight, whatever it is. I set a goal because kind of how it was before when I said initially I wanted to go special forces. I just set it, and then all of a sudden uh, it went away. And very well could have not happened had, had I not been super obsessed about it. But I have these goals next to my bed and I see them every day and it reminds me, okay, yeah, I got to do that. I got to put forth the effort. The second thing is that I truly believe that anything you want, want to do, want to accomplish, want to happen in your life is, is literally just on the other side of hard work. If you want something, you want to get better, you know, you want to confront your issues or whatever, you have to work at it. You can't just sit there and say, oh man, I got this PTSD, this sucks, but then that's it. And it, and then there's no change, right? You need to be able to, to confront your issues and find a way to move past them. And what I found is that people, if they're by themselves, they have a hard time coming to, coming to it. When people are in a group setting, like if you're around some of your military buddies or you're around somebody you can talk to, it, it helps to talk through it. So I'm open about this stuff because it's helped me. Um, it's really helped me a lot. And I, I truly believe that goal setting and talking about stuff are the two huge tenants. But at the other, at the other side of the equation, like I can, uh, I can say, oh man, I suffer from PTSD, and and I I can get moody or things can come back up in my memory. But what I do is I I am obsessive about the gym, and the reason being is because I I feel like I beat my body to make it so tired that I'm too tired to complain about other stuff. Like that's the focus, and it 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 works, man. <laughs> it, it is literally therapy, so I don't have to go see a shrink. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's just, you, you got to set, you got to look at it from an outside perspective. If, if you're just sitting there soaking in about whatever issue you're feeling bad, something happens and it could be legit or it could be something that you're, you know, you're making it out to be bigger than what it be or what it is. You have to step back and look at that situation from an outsider's perspective and make a plan say, I'm going to do this, this, and this to attempt to remedy this situation and then actually execute it. Cause a lot of people, it, I use the metaphor of going to the gym 
literally just showing up to the gym is the hardest part. You know, everybody's like, oh, I got to work out. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it whatever next week. But once you show up and actually execute it, then you're going to set yourself up for success. Absolutely. I think great segue here into talking about what, what are you doing now? What's going on in your life? So I, like I said, I am incredibly blessed. I've been blessed from the get go. And I had the opportunity to look at life from a new, in a new light. And I've reassessed my, um, my goals and my priorities in life. Initially it was go to school, get a degree in IT security or go active duty, um, special forces. But now to me, I want to do something that makes a difference because when I make a difference in other people's lives, it has a positive effect on me. So I've kind of lived my life like that right now. So I look at fitness and I say, Hey, fitness helped me to be able to go backcountry hunt in the woods, to be able to lift some weights, to be able to be functional, just simply carry groceries from my car to the house. So I went and I got some training certifications. I went and got a CrossFit level one training certification. I got the CrossFit adaptive certification and another adaptive certification. So I could work with folks that have disabilities and otherwise thought that they could not exercise in the gym. I started a program. I bought some workout equipment at my, in my garage and I trained people. I just started putting out flyers in town, talking to the VA, the prosthetic clinics, and people have slowly trickled in. And the, the results I've seen are just incredible. I've literally worked with people who have gone from being a type two diabetic to not having to take their insulin anymore because their, their A1C goes better, uh, better. I've had people never be able to get off the ground. I've had people never be able to walk more than two minutes without stopping, you know, people in wheelchairs, people with all kinds of disabilities. We work together in a community environment in the gym and we just crush life and seeing the progress in these people's lives is amazing, man. It is absolutely amazing. It's like a purpose greater than yourself. It's really what it is. And, um, if you have the, if you have the capability and the resources to help other people out, I've, I've, I highly encourage people to, to do to help in some aspect because giving or serving in some aspect, really, it, it teaches your family excellent um, values and it helps you as a person. Like I literally feel like comfortable that I, I don't have to go suffer from PTSD because when I'm helping somebody else out, I'm accountable for their progress. And so it, it prioritizes them over my own selfishness of feeling bad for myself. And I love it. I love it. Oh, that's awesome. So we're going to roll into a Q&A session. But before we do that, um, is there anything else you'd like to say to those listening to the podcast today? I would say that I would say with the proper work and motivation, there is literally nothing you can't do. There's nothing you can't do. Um, it, it all just starts with taking that action. And that's something that I've learned because whether it's a business idea, whether it's just wanting to get off the couch, whether it's just pursuing something in life, just, just start it. The worst that can happen is it, you just have to find another way to do it. So just don't, don't be limited on what people tell you or your, your feelings of fear because fear drives us. And I try to, I try to avoid fear in my life because I feel like it drives me in the wrong direction. Man, uh, again, truly inspirational words. Your story is awesome to hear that. I think, you know, I know everyone that you come in contact with, you inspire them to do better and, and, and push forward and, and hearing your story. I know people are really going to take a lot away from it. So Caleb, I appreciate you uh, joining me on the podcast. Again, we're going to roll into a Q and a session uh, here, but um, until next time.
Catch you Rock on. Way. Boom. All right. Sweet. Um, stop that. You still good uh, for like about 15 minutes or so? Is that? Yeah, man. Yeah, awesome. not a problem. I freaking talk all day. <laughs> yeah. Dude, this stuff is, um, I really, I, I was, before going to that too, I was thinking, um, so I, I was in Afghanistan in 2011, 2012, and I had worked with a couple of Marines over at Leatherneck. And I actually left right before they had the breach in the wall. Um, mm, where yep, they ended yep. up destroying a couple of Harriers and killing a couple of Marines through there. And, uh, yeah, I was, well, then like when working with those Marines, I didn't realize from the Marine Corps, like on the pilot side of the house, those guys will go be JTACs, like any line. Oh, really? uh, yeah. Like that. as part of like their assignment, we used to do some in the air force, like send guys to go be ALOs, you know, with the army and occasionally they get like a JTAC mm-hmm. call. Uh, but these guys, like it was just, Hey, do three years flying assignment, then go do three years. And so I was walking or do three years of JTAC and I was watching uh, a documentary and, um, Sagan and dude, the dude is like, it's on YouTube and he's just calling in airstrikes. I'm like, Oh man, that's like puffy, you know? And like walked on the road. It's, <laughs> it's just so crazy. Yeah. It's so crazy what that, that place has been and kind of where we are today. And, um, yeah. I mean, we were, we had to go, like we needed supplies when we were out there. So we were like, well, you know, Afghans took over camp Leatherneck. So can we go to camp Leatherneck and go get like a new generator? So we had to request from the Afghans to go to camp Leatherneck to get a generator. And then we went over there and it was like freaking Chernobyl. Like they had less than 24 hours to leave. So there's like old crusty food pictures on the wall, clothes everywhere, like the camp minus the people. And we're like doing a scavenging run on our own base. It was just, it's just weird, man. It's a, and then, and then they ramped it back up. So my father-in-law just got back and he was there as an electrical contractor and they ramped that sucker back up all over again. That's what crazy. I, was, I was saying. Uh, Cause when I deployed last was to Jordan and that was 2014, 15 for ISIS. Right. And then like, that was like, that was it, you know, like that's where all, everything was going. And then about a year later, that's when we started deploying dudes back to Bagram in F 16. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where guys, <laughs> you know, still are today. And you're like, God, like, God bless, man. We just like, can't, <laughs> we just can't get around it. But yeah. My dad, he, he was a contractor there in um, North of Kandahar for a while. And, same deal. Like, Hey, we're shutting down. And like one week later, just turn everything over to the Afghans. <laughs> you know, like, God, what are we doing? Absolutely. Uh, man, Caleb, I really appreciate you taking the time today and just going through your journey, your story. It's really inspirational and taking the time to do this Q and a session. Again, I think people are really going to enjoy it. I, I did. And I meant actually too, I was going to say this and I kind of forgot out of all the questions I asked, um, I haven't had this happen before, but there probably, I think I have 16 different people in some various form or fashion that wanted to thank you for your service and what you do. Some of them were fairly comical, which, you know, I alluded to earlier was just, you know, how do you manage to carry your gigantuan balls around? Um, so, you know, uh, it, it, it's it, just hearing your story and things like that. When people just read about the initial post was an inspiration. So hearing you talk is definitely going to amplify that. No, it's awesome, man. I'm, I'm, it's a privilege for me to have served and I'm very blessed to still be alive. And so I just figure there's no alternative. Just, just keep on pushing, keep grinding away. Awesome. Caleb, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. Truly a pleasure talking to you today. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a review over on iTunes. If you're looking to support the show and more content, swing over to patreon.com backslash the afterburn podcast. And until next time, don't bring a week.
The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarren.com slash rain.